Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to, to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out. And for, for, for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And John was finishing his course. He said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them uh, by, condemning, by condemning Him, and though they found in him no, guilty worthy, no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it, it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that He raised Him up from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He has spoken this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, He says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses." Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Beware. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, 
I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray and ask God for His help as we study His Word this morning. Father, we come before You and we say thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Acts 13, verses 13 through 52. We pray, God, that You would help us as we hear this Word this morning. Help me communicate. I pray that I would communicate Your truth to Your people, not my own personal opinions. I pray that we would have ears to hear Your Word, hearts that are warm and receptive, soft, malleable. Teach us, God. Move us, shape us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A man threw a large party at a banquet hall. He sent out a ton of invites. Finally, the food was ready. It was hot. The tables were set. And so he sent out word to all of the invited guests. He says, come on in. But everybody starts coming up with lame excuses. Well, I just bought a new car and I've got to test drive it. Oh, I just bought a new TV and I need to install Netflix on it. He gets angry. He then says, forget you. And he tells his assistant, he says, I want you to go to the poor, the lame, the blind, and the crippled. To the highways and the byways. To the outside. To the outcast. I want you to invite those who would otherwise never be invited to this banquet. And to them, he says, come on in. This is my version of a parable to told by Jesus. And Jesus tells us that those who had no money to repay were the ones that were accepting the invitation and they were coming on in. Those on crutches coming in, in wheelchairs coming in, the blind being led into this wonderful banquet hall. These people, the crippled, the blind, the lame, these would have in their day represented the outsider. The outsider. And it is a story that frames what God is doing right here in Acts chapter 13. The invitation has gone. The guests have said, no thank you. Have rejected the invitation of the Gospel to be saved. To have a, 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 a place at the eternal banquet of God. They've said, nah, we're good. And Paul here turns from those original invitees, the Jews. He turns to those who would have been considered the outsider, and that is the Gentiles. The invitation goes out, and those who reject the invitation actually make their choice and solidify their choice to reject salvation. What we see here in this passage, and this is why we're treating the whole thing together, is that as the message goes out, the insiders reject the banquet. The outsiders come on in. So I want to tag my sermon this morning, come on in. Come on in. 
here's the main point right here. Salvation comes from God. Listen to this. Since salvation comes from God, not us. Since salvation comes from God, then anyone can be saved. Let me say that again. Since salvation comes from God, not us, then anyone can be saved. Now let's admit that there are two categories of people. There are the religious insiders, and there are the religious outsiders. The religious insiders are those who have been taught Bible doctrine since they were in their mother's womb. They were baptized at eight days old in a believer's Baptist church. They said a prayer of salvation at seven days old, all right? They grew up in the church. They, 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 they've never once, they've never once questioned as to whether or not they are actually part of the family of God. They assume it. They assume it because they are an insider. Now, there's something appealing about being an insider, and we're going to talk about that. But before we do, there's also the religious outsiders. The religious outsiders are those who would say, Christianity ain't for me. I don't have a problem with it necessarily. It's just not for me. Um, you know, they might think of religion as something akin to their ethnicity. You're either born with it or you're not born with it. You know, I wasn't born religious. I wasn't brought up Christian. So therefore, I'm not religious. I'm not Christian. You, you see what I'm saying? Those outsiders or other versions of outsiders might be somebody, shoot, maybe they grew up in the church, but they've just made such a mess of their life through addiction, through foul decisions. And they, they, they just feel like, man, I'm so far from God. Religious insiders and religious outsiders can come in all shapes and sizes and all fashions. But there are religious insiders. Meaning, they just simply believe that they're good to go because they are on the in. Because they know something. Because they've got something. And yes, they're, they're still nagged by guilt. But they have learned, as an insider, they have learned a sacrificial system of self-justification. And they are too proud to admit their shame. And they are too ashamed to admit their pride. Since, I'll, I'll say it again. They are too proud to admit their shame. And they are too ashamed to admit their pride. Should I say it again? Listen, since salvation comes from God, not us, good news is this, salvation can come to anyone. Listen, to the insider and the outsider. I want to preach a message to both crowds, to warn the insiders, to warn you against your pride, your self-righteousness, and your jealousy. And I want to preach a message to the outsider. Life is not better outside of Christ. Come on in. Paul and Barnabas are set aside by Antioch Church. We saw that in the previous chapter. They're sent out as missionaries, and uh, they, are, they are sent to take the gospel to the outsiders. They move then from Paphos to Perga to Pisidian Antioch. And Pisidian Antioch is, is the place where our story takes place today. Once they arrive there in Pisidian Antioch, they enter into a synagogue, and we learn a little something about Paul's missionary strategy. He didn't immediately cut off his Sabbath day attendance, but he wasn't going that Saturday to the synagogue to worship. 
Because notice he wasn't meeting with the Christians. He was going as a missionary into the synagogue to evangelize. And by the way, you know, Jews might still do that today who get saved and continue to go back to their synagogue to share the gospel. Just a thought. Missionary strategies. We see a missionary strategy here of Paul. He goes into the synagogue and listen, when he gets there, crazy thing happens. He gives, he, he receives an opportunity to speak. They said, do you have a word of encouragement? And I'm, I'm sure his heart started pounding and he thought to himself, amen, the Lord has appointed this moment for me. Now listen, church, there will be times when you will randomly get invited to share about Jesus. Just out of the blue. You're hanging out with somebody and they're like, so, all right, I know you go to church on Sundays, so tell me what is Christianity all about or what's going on or, or you're at a party, and, uh, a birthday party, and somebody says, you know, hey, give us a word of hope. Uh, give, get, share a word of hope for the, for the birthday boy. Uh, or you're, you're hanging out in the streets and, and uh, you're interacting with some dudes on the corner and, and all of a sudden somebody asks you, so tell me about Jesus. You just never know. You see what I'm saying? Like You will have random opportunities that you will likely miss unless you're looking for them. All right? Now, when that random opportunity comes, you don't have time to find my phone number and say, hey, talk me through this. I have this opportunity. I wondered if you could kind of share with me a Bible story or a verse or so, you know, something. Like, how do I share uh, about Christ? Listen, if you are not ready, you will miss the opportunity. So, be ready for the opportunity Paul was. Like, Paul doesn't study. He just goes. And it's amazing. His sermon is amazing. It's filled with Scripture. It's filled with logic. He has thought deeply. He has prepared for years for this moment. Don't wait until this moment to begin preparing. Are you with me? With that said, Paul has three points. First, humans need a Savior. Second, Jesus is the Savior. And third, Jesus saves completely. Let's look at his message here. First, humans need, need a Savior. In verse 16, we see who he's addressing. He says, fellow Israelites, you who are worshipers of, of, of God. So these would be the Gentile converts to Judaism. He's speaking to those who would understand themselves to be worshiping the God of Israel. And he says, listen to me. So he's speaking. Listen, you've got to track with me here. He's speaking to Jews. In verses 17 through 22, he lays out the history of their people. He goes from God's choice of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through Egypt to the judges to Saul to then God's appointing of King David. And as we see this first section in verses 17 through 22, what I want to point out is that his main theme here is not how great our people are, but how great God is. I mean, look at the action verbs in these verses. They all apply to God. He says, God chose our ancestors, verse 17. God made them prosperous. God led them out of Egypt. God endured. He put up with their conduct. He overthrew the nations. He gave them judges. He removed King Saul. He made David the king. Meaning, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is God's action, not ours. All of the good things, fellow Jews, all of the good things that we are about, that we have received, is because of God's action on our behalf, not because of our action on our behalf. How is it that God would use anybody to bring about salvation? Like, how could God have used a liar like Abraham and a deceiver like Jacob and a rebel like Moses and adulterer like David and wanderers 
like Israel to bring about salvation to the whole world? The answer is, is because salvation belongs to the Lord. How is it that any human being can know God? Oh, as we sang these songs this morning, this song, I will rise, I, I will rise on that day with Him. I, I have this promise of new life followed by He will hold me fast. Meaning I'm so fickle. How do I know I'm going to, how can I say I will rise with such confidence when I know how fickle my faith is? It's because of who God is. It's because He will hold me fast. Are you, are you with me? How is it that any human being can be saved? It's because salvation belongs to the Lord. How is it that any human being, given the violence that we've created, given the wars that we've created, drug addiction, power plays, cutthroat street politics, all of the mess that we have created as a society, how can there be salvation? It's because salvation belongs to the Lord. How is it that God did not let you die that night you were so drunk you don't remember what happened? How is it that, that, that God kept you when you were living a life that should have led you to jail or death? How is it that God saved you when you were so wrapped up in your pride and your power and pursuing lust? Church, it's because salvation belongs to the Lord. Let me just highlight one example from this text, from this section here in verse 18. It says, for 40 years, God put up with them in the wilderness. Now, the NIV writes that, uh, inter, uh, translates that, in, endured. For 40 years, God endured Israel in the wilderness. I don't know if Israel would have seen it that way. I think Israel would have seen it more like, for 40 years, we endured the wilderness. For 40 years, we endured having to walk everywhere. For 40 years, we endured wearing the same clothing. For 40 years, we endured manna and quail as our only diet. For 40 years, we endured not having a home, not having a place. For 40 years, we had to endure God so often being silent. And we are no different. You see, we think our biggest problem is that we are in the wilderness, that we have to endure the wilderness. But church, our biggest issue is our conduct before God while we are in the wilderness. Are you with me? You see, when you're in the wilderness, we start complaining. This isn't the life I want. This isn't the job I want. I don't have the feelings I want. I don't have the happiness I want. I don't have the marriage I want. I don't have the education I want. I don't have the neighborhood I want. I don't have the car that I want. I could keep on going. Things aren't the way I want them to be. And I am in this state of wilderness. And as a result, I'm questioning God. As a result, I'm saying, I don't even know if God loves me. As a result, we're reinterpreting our past experience in Egypt, saying, man, life was just better when I was in Egypt. Oh, the wilderness is so hard. And we think, just because we made it through the wilderness, that we are the hero and we should get some kind of badge. Church, God doesn't give Israel a trophy for making it through 40 years of wilderness wandering. The hero was not Israel. The hero was the God who put up with Israel. The hero is the God who is patient with us when our faith fails, when our trust wavers, when our fickleness gets the best of us, the God who endures. That word endures literally means to put up with moods. 
the God who put up with our moods. He's the hero of our story. The point we're trying to make here is that salvation belongs to the Lord. Big God theology here. It's all about Him. Now the second point here, in addition to the first one, that humans need a Savior, the second point is that Jesus is the Savior. This is exactly where Paul goes. That Jesus is the Savior, not man. Not any person. I was hanging out with Isaiah, buddy, Isaiah's there you go. I've been hanging out with Isaiah for like every day for the last eight days. And a um, new friend of mine, sharing the gospel with them. He's like drinking it up like water. It's wonderful to see. So I'm hanging out with Isaiah and Angelo. And I asked, I asked these guys if I could share this illustration. So, By the way, if you're ever concerned, like, man, I hope he doesn't ever use me in an illustration, just know that most of the time I don't ask you for your permission, okay? But I did in this case. Um, and uh, so I'm hanging out with the two of them, and Isaiah was going on with Angelo. They're, they're, I'm just listening to their conversation. He's like, man, you know, he's talking about me. He's like, man, if I didn't meet Joel, like, I don't know where, where my life would be. Like, he's just pointing me in the right direction, and he's helping with me with this and that, and, and he's helping me to know God, and he's just like, like, my life is just changing because of this man. Like, and, and while he's saying this, Angelo's just chuckling. <laughs> and, uh, and then Angelo finally cuts him off, and he says, it ain't Joel. He says, he's just a vessel. He says, and I understand sometimes the one who shares Christ with you, we think that it's them. But Joel's going to fail you. And I'm going to fail you. The one who's changing you is Christ. Amen? Amen, Isaiah? (laughs) Because, listen, Jesus is the Savior. See, the the problem with insider thinking is they look to other things as their savior or other people. Status, their family name, their church background. No, Jesus is the savior. You see, the Jews, as they're listening to Paul's sermon, they would have been like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like agreeing with him up until the Jesus point. You know, he's going through the history, big God, God was so good, he gave us, he raised up David, King David, and he's promised all of these wonderful things to David, he's promised David a throne that lasts forever, decay is in this world, death is in this, this world, but to David he promised eternal life, and they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. You see, the insider problem is they are looking to other people and they would have considered themselves okay simply because they are the people of David. But Paul goes on, and he says, Jesus came on the scene. God sent us, as promised, a Savior, and that is Jesus. Look at verse 23. Of this man's offspring, David's, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised, and so he talks about the forerunner, John the Baptist, fulfillment of prophecy. He goes on to say uh, that, that this message in verse 26 is to us. This message came to the insiders, to the people of David. This message has come to us, brothers and sister Jews. However, we have rejected this This Messiah. Jesus was rejected. He was put on a cross. But even still, he points out that that was to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. But it didn't end with his death. Verse 30 says, but God raised him up and then sent us as his witnesses. Now again, I want to point out that as we get into the second portion of Paul's sermon, we still see all of the action verbs being applied to God. God brought a Savior, verse 23. God raised Jesus, verse 30. God fulfilled His promise, verse 33. Meaning God is intervening in our mess to bring us a Savior. A pastor once said, when we sin and mess up our lives, we find that God doesn't go off and leave us, but rather He enters into our trouble and saves us. 
You see, how did the world get such a mess? A, a murder on your block with someone you were trying to build a relationship with. How did the world get such a mess? Addiction, drugs, heroin, killing our older generation, killing our younger generation. How did the world get such a mess? Men abusing children, taking advantage of women, how did the world get such a mess? I'll tell you how. Sin. And the curse of sin is death. But Jesus is able to take care of sin and therefore reverse the curse of death. And that's Paul's next point. Because he's taken us to David, but the question is, how is it that the promises given to David actually apply to Jesus, not David? And he wants to make this point because he's preaching to Jews who think of themselves as the people of David. So he uses two scripture verses to turn from David to Jesus. Look at verse 34. He says, And as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Now that's Isaiah 55, 3. Speaking of one to come who is going to receive the blessings of David. So the promise and the blessings given to David of a reversal of death, of a throne that lasts forever, a body that will not see decay. He says those promises are actually not to David personally, but they're coming to another. And then he goes on in uh, uh, verse 35, he quotes Psalm 1610. Therefore, he says in another, in, in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Well, now that was spoken today about David, or so we thought. The Holy One must be David, the king, and he is not going to see corruption. His body is not going to decay. But there's a problem. David died, and his body decayed. So what happens to that promise of God? The logic in Paul's argument and his point he's making is that God wasn't actually making that promise to David personally, but that the Holy One was not David, but the Holy One was David's Lord, the one that is to come. Salvation wasn't through Abraham. Abraham died and his body decayed. Salvation wasn't through Isaac. Isaac died and his body decayed. Salvation wasn't through Jacob. Jacob died and his body decayed. Salvation wasn't through David. David, yes, received these promises, but he died. And his body decayed. So who then does salvation come through? Well, answer, Jesus. That's the point he's making in verses 36 through 40. That, that Jesus is the one who is the recipient of these promises. He died, and his body did not decay. Because three days later, he rose from the dead. Reversing the curse. And so then he calls his listeners to obey the gospel to believe in Jesus Christ, verse 37, but he whom God raised from the dead did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that this man, speaking of Jesus, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. He wants them to know Jesus, and he ends his sermon with a warning. Don't miss what God is doing. Church, humans need a Savior. The problem is, is that you need to know you need a Savior in order for Jesus to be your Savior. You see, the insider problem is that you never actually considered yourself as someone who really personally needs a Savior. You've, you've always just assumed it. You've always assumed that God is good with you because you have feelings of love for Him. 
because you go to church on Sundays, because of your last name, because of whatever. You need a Savior. You need a place to, to put that guilt that you are covering up through self-justification. A couple weeks ago, I, I poured myself a cup of water and I put it on the table. And my three-year-old son, Chapman, kicks a ball and knocks over my water. So immediately, Chapman knows he's in trouble, you know. Immediately, he knows he did something wrong. I don't even say anything to him. I just kind of look at him. And he runs away. And he says, I don't want it to be my fault. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Through the mouth of babes, we learn a whole lot about ourselves. We learn about the human condition through three-year-olds because they have no filter. The human condition, the human problem is this, is we don't want it to be our fault. We want to evade our responsibility for our mistakes. This is why nobody can, can apologize. This is why everybody's defensive. This is why nobody can take responsibility for what they've done. Because the human problem is this, is that we are all running away from the Father saying, I don't want it to be my fault. Now, why do we do that? Think about this. Why do we do that? Well, it's because if it's your fault, then you have to deal with this feeling of guilt. And who wants to feel guilty? I mean, what do you do with your guilt? You see, the insiders, what they do, and this is why it's attractive to be an insider. The insiders have a, an elaborate system of dealing with their guilt. They've figured things out to where they can tell themselves that just simply because they are an insider, that they don't have to feel guilty for what they've done. But at 2 a.m. in the morning when you wake up, that guilt is ever before you. You know what I'm saying? So what do we do? What do we do with our guilt? What do we do with our guilt? Check it out. What we see here in this text is that the, the religious insiders refuse to accept the Savior. The religious outsiders, however, are ordained to be part of the family of God. Now, remind, let me remember, remind you of the point of my sermon, that, and that is this. Since salvation comes from God, not us, anyone can be saved. Like, the, the, this offering of removal of fault, removal of guilt, has gone out to absolutely anyone, and since it comes from God, and we've already seen how good God is here in the text, since salvation comes from God, then anyone can be saved. And so then the question becomes then, why would anyone reject it? Two reasons. Number one, the gospel demands humility. The gospel demands humility. You know, my three-year-old, I don't want it to be my fault. I mean, he's not in the room, so I'm just going to say it. That's a statement of pride. And we all fall guilty of that kind of statement. Humility says it is my fault. And I need reconciliation. You see, as a parent, I get the opportunity as my son grows to help him know where we place our fault, where we place our guilt, church. But we can't get to that point without realizing that we need it, without actually looking at our sin dead in the face and saying, it is my fault. So, so, Paul is kind of smashing all of this. Paul smashes any ability for his Jewish brothers and sisters to be able to say, I don't have any fault. 
He looks right at them, and like Peter previously, Paul says, you crucified Jesus. Like, his blood is on your hands. You are guilty in your sin. We see the Jews' response in verses 42 through 46. In verse 44, it says they are filled with jealousy. You can see the insider, when, when, when they start to lose some power, when they start to lose some, some of that comfort, comfortable uh, presence that they've built around themselves, they get jealous. It's the other side of pride. Verse 46, it says they thrust aside the message. That's, that's powerful language. They wholeheartedly reject the gospel message of Christ. And they go on, and Paul says in verse 46, he says that you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Think about this. How humbling is that statement? A rejection of Jesus Christ this morning is for you to judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. It is to say, I am not going to heaven. I'm unworthy of being saved, and I reject the invitation to that banquet. It's profoundly humbling. They proceed to persecute Paul. He ends up shaking off the dust off his feet as he warns the city and keeps it moving. Now, secondly, it demands humility. The gospel demands humility, but the gospel also demands acceptance. Like, you have to accept Sinner, Savior, Lord, follow Christ, love God. It is a reception of Christ. One preacher put it this way. He says, God is more willing to save sinners than sinners are willing to be saved. You refuse to accept it. Church, going to worship is just not enough to save you. Being part of a religious family is not enough. Feeling a sense of love for God is not enough. Believing in a quote-unquote God, a general God, is not enough. You need forgiveness of sins, and forgiveness of sins comes through the Savior of Jesus Christ. And you are to bow before Him and humbly plead the blood of Christ and believe. And through your belief, through your faith, through your trust, through your receiving, it says you are freed from sin. Look at verse 39. It says, by him, so by Jesus, going back to Paul's sermon, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law. Now that's a somewhat confusing statement. The King James Version puts it like this. It says, all that believe are justified from all things. The Christian Standard Bible puts it like this. Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified through the law of Moses. The NIV puts it like this. Everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I looked at the Greek and I realized I'm not a Greek scholar. I was like, you know, it's, it's confusing to me. And I, I, I think the various translations of this statement make a pretty clear point. And that is simply this, that through Christ there is nothing that will separate you from God. Nothing that will separate you from God. Now the insiders reject this message, but here's the good news for those of you that are outsiders, the outsiders receive it. Paul says, we now turn to the Gentiles. In verse 47, this has been prophesied, that the original recipients would reject it and that we would turn to the Gentiles. In verse 48, it says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying God. I mean, of course they did. Like for the first time, Gentiles realize like, wow, we can actually be part of the blessings. Like I'm hearing all of these good things and the reversal of death and no more decay and salvation and forgiveness of sins. And Wait a second, you're telling me that I can be part of that? Oh, they were happy. And it goes on to say, to tell us, as many as were appointed 
to eternal life believed. Here is the great irony of this passage. Those who thought they were appointed reject the invitation. And those who are appointed are the outsiders. God has chosen those far off with the same kind of loving choice that he chose our father Abraham. That is personal. That's intimate. That's like marriage. That's love for the least, the lost, and the last. You look at the text and we realize it's not like they believe and so therefore they're appointed. But it's the other way around. They're appointed to be part of the family of God. And therefore they believe. This is special. This is beautiful. This is encouragement. For all of us who were so far off, you may have never been chosen for the team on the playground. Maybe you weren't chosen for the job that you wanted. Maybe you weren't chosen by your professor or by your teacher. Maybe you weren't chosen by your parents. Maybe you weren't chosen by society. But do you realize that for all who are trusting in Jesus Christ, that God chose you to be part of His family? That is phenomenal. That is love. Have you ever believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins? Every sin is forgiven through Him. Not some sins. Not most sins. Say it again, Tony. All sins are forgiven. The word is pas in the Greek, which means all. Tony's the Greek scholar here. Every sin is forgiven. Have you ever believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins? He saves, not because of works done by us, but according to His own mercy. Titus 3.5 He saves us to the uttermost. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Church, only Jesus can save. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. How wonderful is this God who goes to the edges of society and looks at all of us who don't deserve it, who would never have received such a glorious invitation, and He says, come on in to my banquet. Praise God for His glorious grace, for His wonderful mercy shown to us, the outsider, the blind, the lame, the cripple. That is us. And we have been chosen by God to come in. One of my favorite parables as I close is what's often called the parable of the prodigal son. Many of you know it. There's a prodigal He's the youngest of two boys. He takes his family inheritance and he goes and he squanders it on sin to the point where he realizes, man, I'm about to eat the pig food. I'm so hungry. He's got no money left. He's got no friends left. He is miserable in your sin. And a little side note, that's where sin will lead you. It has joy, fun, happiness for a little bit. But it leads you to the point where you say, I think I'm going to join the swine for dinner tonight. And then he discovers that, uh, uh, that you know, hey, it, it might just be better for me to be a servant in my dad's house than to eat with the pigs. And listen, in this ancient world, you would have not expected forgiveness. In this ancient world, after a something, uh, something this atrocious, you would have been an outsider forever, cut off from the family line. But as you know, the story goes, and the prodigal comes home, and the father runs and embraces his son, and he says, hey, let's, let's kill the fatted calf, and let's throw a feast, let's throw a banquet. For my son is, is home. 
Listen, the outsider is now invited to come in, not as a slave, not as a servant, but as his son. Come on in and enjoy the feast. What grace is that? Now, there's another character in the story. And that's the older son. He's the the good boy. Like a good little boy. He's been obedient to the father. He hasn't even touched his inheritance yet. He's saving. He he doesn't even at McDonald's he saves all of his money so much. Like he's just, you know, he's, he's so good. Does everything right to please the father. He's a little put off, isn't he? When the younger son comes home and is given a feast, and the father says, oh, come on, wouldn't you join him? Like, he's, you know, he's, your brother who was dead, he's now alive, wouldn't you come and join us? Listen, I want to point this out. Even the older son, who is the insider, self-righteous, he assumes the father's kindness. Even the older son is given the invitation. Come on Come into the party. Come in. In, uh, Insiders in the room, come in this morning. Know the grace and the kindness of God in the gospel. Outsiders in the room, come on in. There is room for one more. Come on in. As the text closed in verses Verse 42, it says, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is what the gospel does. When we proclaim the gospel and we see outsiders come to Christ and come in, it fills us with joy. May we be his people who proclaim this good news and are filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for this passage, this beautiful story, this sermon that that Paul, through your help, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, spoke, that Luke recorded. We receive all of this today, God, as your word for us. I pray that you would plant this deep in our hearts, that you would shape us and fashion us according to your likeness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.